so the same is for you. If you choose what Satan offers, bow down and worship me, give me your allegiance, declare that I am worthy, you might gain the world. In fact, you won't actually gain the world because he won't give you it. He won't give it to you. But you will lose your soul. Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Hello and welcome again to Grace Maryville Weekly, which is a podcast ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is a part of a sermon series presented by Pastor Chris Reiser from the book of Matthew. Pastor Chris has sought to demonstrate that Jesus is the King, which is the overall theme of the book of Matthew. It is our goal to provide messages on Monday and Friday weekly from the pulpit at Grace Community Church to equip the saints for the work of ministry and to call everyone to repent and believe. Let's listen now as Pastor Chris works exegetically through the text. It is painful and difficult for believers when unbelievers then are, are confirmed in their, in their hatred of God as they watch you disobey in so many ways in which stepping out from underneath God's plan, even though it includes suffering and difficulty, to really essentially acquiesce to Satan's plan. The price is high, although Satan says it is easy. Satan's plan was to draw the son away from that from the worthiness that God desired for him by enticing him to grab the kingdom the father had promised instead of enduring the long, bitter, humiliating, and painful road to the cross and even longer wait in heaven for God's time to be completed. Jesus could rule the world now. And who wouldn't be tempted by no trials? Again, from the mo- this is what Satan is offering. From this, you've had one trial. You had to go through 40 days and 40 nights. You had no food. You were hungry. Enough of this. I take you from here to the rulership of the world. I take you from here to all the power and glory and pleasure that the world has to offer. It's all yours. No trials, no suffering, no pain. This is what Satan offers. And who of us aren't drawn by that? If I were to say today to you, would you like a life with no more pain? No more suffering? No more powerlessness? You can control your own destiny, your own fate. You can rule others. You will, you will stand before them as the one in charge. Would that not be a temptation to you? I believe that it would be. It is to me. And particularly those of you who have suffered greatly and who are suffering perhaps even now. But this is a temptation that Satan offers you. Step outside of God's will. Do what I say and I will take care of you. But he won't. He would and will destroy you through that. Who of us would not want to pray this prayer? Oh, that you would bless me indeed and enlarge my border, that your hand might be with me and that you might keep me from harm and that it might not pain me. Are you familiar with that prayer? It's called the prayer of Jabez. First Chronicles 4.10. It's a real prayer and God answered it, but it was a prayer for Jabez in Jabez's time and in Jabez's circumstances, it is not the general prayer of the people of God and it is never a demand of the people of God upon him. Give me no pain. Who wouldn't want to pray that? And yet that is not 
what God directs us to as we seek to serve and to honor him. Let's be more like Moses, who really demonstrates a pattern, the same, a similar pattern that Jesus demonstrates here in avoiding this temptation and defeating this temptation soundly. Hebrews eleven twenty four. by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Oh, we, we say, yes, Moses, that's what I want to be like. And yet yesterday when there was a passing pleasure of sin, when you wanted to hold on to that bitterness in your heart because it pleased you, that anger that you had towards a spouse or towards a child, you exercised that anger because it pleased you. Even if you are in larger measure seeking to abandon the, the draw of the pleasures of the world, yet we would have to admit that we are easily drawn astray by the pleasures of sin for a season. We will wallow in bitterness, wallow in unforgiveness. We will take hold of anxiety and have it run and rule our lives. Why? Because it pleases us to do so. That's the only reason we continue. That's the way it pleases for us to respond. But Moses didn't. He chose to endure all treatment with the people of God rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And certainly this is what Jesus chooses to do at this time as well. He is looking, what? To the reward. And he will step away from the passing pleasures of sin. But there's one more implication. So the first implication was God required you to give up your power. Take it back. That's not fair. Take it back now. God is demanding you to go through suffering to attain glory. So attain glory on your own without the suffering. I'll give it to you without all that pain. And why is it right of God to ask that of you anyway? Isn't he a holy God? Isn't he a righteous God? Why is there sin in the world? Why is there evil in the world? Abandon that God and I'll give you what you want. That's what Satan says. And then the third implication is this, and the most fundamental, really all of it boiling down to this. God requires too much in his worship. Essentially, God is not worthy of worship. So worship me, which is really to worship yourself. Or I might put that the other way around. The worship of yourself is really to worship Satan, because that's demonic rule. That's what Satan did. I will. I will ascend above the Most High. I will ascend above the Mount. I will be like the Most High. Well, this is what Satan offers to you. God asks too much. He isn't worthy of the worship that he commands. This is fundamental. There is no more important question for you to answer this morning in the same way that Jesus answered it. That's my challenge. That's my encouragement. Because Jesus will reject this entirely, essentially saying, no, my father is worthy of my worship. Even I, the, the second member of the Trinity, fully equal with him, he is worthy of worship and honor. And I will never worship you. But do you believe the same? Essentially, again, Satan saying, God is not worthy of worship. He's abandoned you. He's demanded of you more than he should. He's taken away your power to live for yourself. I'll give you back autonomy. I will allow you to be the master of your own fate. God is holding back. God wants to keep you from being like him. God wants to dominate you and keep you under his thumb. Where have you heard that before? How about Genesis 3? That the in the garden where Adam and Eve are underneath the thumb, as it were, of God, his commands. And what does Satan say? The servant said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. He's holding back. He doesn't want you to have what you really deserve. 
And what you really deserve is to be like him. Isn't, isn't that the challenge of every cult? Isn't that the challenge of every world religion? Be your own God. Become God. It's, it's all fundamentally that. Every one of the religions of the world. There's only one religion that says, ultimately, you come underneath the hand of a holy God, you will never be him. You may never be him. You could never be him. He's the holy God, but he's worthy of your worship. He stands transcendent from all of his creation. He is worthy of every ounce of your allegiance and worship, and you must worship him in order to be in right relationship with him. You must fall on your knees and worship him. Fall down and worship me, and I will give you everything, says Satan, and this is in essence what he always promises. He promised Eve that by eating the forbidden fruit, she would not die as God had warned, but she would become a God herself. And yet this is his lie, because if Jesus had chosen this and gained the whole world, he would have lost what? His soul. And so the same is for you. If you choose what Satan offers, bow down and worship me, give me your allegiance, declare that I am worthy, you might gain the world. In fact, you won't actually gain the world, because he won't give you it. He won't give it to you, but you will lose your soul. Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for the life of his soul? That's just a couple chapters down from this temptation. You think they don't fit together? Jesus already passed this test, and so he tells everyone else, don't gain the world and lose your soul. I didn't. I didn't. I was offered the world. I was offered all the kingdoms of the world. I rejected it because Satan is not worthy of worship. God is, and that's Jesus' response. First, Jesus dis dismisses Satan. Now, whether that is because Satan has simply gone too far no, I think the issue is it's time to be done. Satan bears really the reality of what he's been trying to get all along. Worship me. Because again, any act of disobedience to God the Father would have been an act of worship of Satan. That's what it would have been. So in veiled form, he's asked that twice. Turn the stones into bread. That's not what God wants. That's what you need to do. Exercise your deity. Throw yourself off the temple. That's not what God wants. That's how you will show the, the reality of your humanity and, and the reality of your faith. Force God into action. Disobey him and you ultimately worship me. Well, now he just bears, he, he just, he rips off the veil and says, look, bow down, enough of this. I'll give you everything, bow down. And Jesus says, enough of this. We're done. This is the final, you know, this is the final temptation you will give me now. We're finished. And he says, drop your eyes down to verse 10. Then Jesus said to him, go, Satan. Now Jesus gives the command. Each time he's responded with scripture and he will hear again in a moment, but here he gives his own word as it were, go, Satan, leave Jesus is not simply terminating the interview. He is sending his adversary packing. You're done. It's over. No more of this. Perhaps it is you have presumed too much Satan. Perhaps it is in revealing yourself, you have, un, you know, you've, you've lost the right of interview, which is all what Jesus, this is Jesus granting it, of course. But whatever it is, it is done, and Jesus is saying, this is over. I will pass this test, and now he gives the principle, and again, he uses scripture. So he dismisses Satan, and by the way, of course, this is Jesus' power and right to do so. 
He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and even operating as fully man and in the power of the Spirit, he has the right and authority to dismiss Satan, and he does. And so when he does, Satan may not say, I'm not leaving. Sorry, I'm, I'm sticking around. As we will see, he goes. Jesus says, go, Satan, gives him a parting word, almost as he's leaving. Oh, one more verse of Scripture. Let's just finish this out. So again, Jesus uses Scripture. For it is written, says Jesus, again, our grafo, our perfect passive. It stands written. It has been written. It remains written. The words that are the very character and nature of God recorded in written form. And as always, he identifies the proper principle. He uses scripture to bring to bear the right principle to avoid the temptation. And this has been our, our pattern all along. You have to know scripture, but you have to understand it well enough so that you can bring it to bear in the right circumstance with the right principle to overcome the temptation that arises. This is not a sloppy handling of the word of God, which unfortunately is where so many churches and so many individuals are. You've heard things about the Word of God. You've perhaps even memorized pieces of the Word of God, but you don't know how to use it. It's not an effective sword. Did you hear Alejandro last week? Was that not a blessing for him to be able to bring the Word of God as he wrestled? I mean, he's, he's been doing this for about seven years. The, the ability that he had to communicate in English with Spanish being his native language with not all that much time to do this was tremendous. And yet, what was the most important thing about what he did? He simply brought you the word. And he said, the word of God is what? It is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces even to the division of soul and spirit, to joints and marrow, and judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Do you use it wisely? Do you understand how it is to be used, how it is to be brought to bear? Because although the spirit of God uses it, he uses it through your intellect, through your understanding. And so as you understand scripture, you are then able to bring the proper principles to bear and send the devil packing. And it is the only way. It's not even just simply, in Jesus' name, I command you, Satan, to... I don't think you command Satan anything, ever. Because that's not your right. The Son of God could do that. I'm more than happy with him saying, go, Satan. What you say is you bring Scripture to bear. I won't do that because Scripture says... This. And that's how, by the way, in James 4, verse 7, submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. What does submit to God mean? Obey his word. Understand it and obey it. You submit to God, Satan flees. You do what he says, Satan must go. You understand scripture, apply it in your life, and Satan has no power to rule there. And he cannot. He cannot. First, Peter 5, 9, but resist him. That's your adversary. The devil prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. What does firm in your faith mean? Obeying God. Putting the principles of Scripture into practice when you cannot see God. He is not yet here. You don't yet touch him or feel him. You obey him by faith. You resist him firm in your faith. This is what Jesus is doing this is what you are to do. He uses scripture, he identifies the principle. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Scripture, A here, so Jesus identifies the principle. Scripture commands the worship of God alone. There is only one being worthy of worship in the universe. Why? Because there's only one true deity in the universe. Please, please do not do not buy into the mistake of saying, well, there are spiritual powers. There's God, he's a spiritual power. There is Satan, he's a spiritual power. These are equal opposite powers in the universe. This is nothing less than paganism. 
They're not equal and opposite powers. There are powers in the universe. There's the power of God who is good and righteous only, no sin. There is the power, as it were, of Satan and sin, but they are not on equal plane. Satan is a created being, his power and his evil allowed by God only until such time as God decides that this is done. So do not buy into, well, there's these two equal and opposite powers. No, there's only one deity. There's only one true God. Everything else is a created being not worthy of your worship. More powerful than you, certainly. Satan is a different kind of being than you. There are are spiritual beings who are much more powerful, still created, not worthy of worship. Nothing other than no one other than the true God, and there is only one is worthy of worship. Let's just You need to remember that. You need to proclaim that. You need to believe that. Because in our world, it is not believed. Now, I could turn you to a hundred scriptures which command this to be the case. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 6.13. You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who surround you. It's fascinating how those fit together. You fear only the Lord your God. Why? Because there's only one true deity. Why would you need to fear any created being when the one true deity is in charge? There's no need to fear any of the sub-creatures that he's created because he rules them all. But unless you understand and remember that there's only one God, you will fear created things. And the rest of the world lives in fear of created things because they don't believe that there's only one true God. You didn't think that was an important thing here, O Israel? The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You didn't think it was important that there's a singular God only. He's in the form of Trinity, but that's kind of a secondary issue. It's absolutely fundamental. But you need to keep reminding yourself of it. Why am I fearing these other things? Why would I I obey this, this creature, Satan, who would help the evil in my heart rise up, and that I would obey myself, as it were, a created being. Deuteronomy 10, 20, you shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and cling to him. You shall swear by his name. Jeremiah 10, 7, who would not fear you, O king of the nations? Indeed, it is your due. For among all the wise men of all the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. Let me read that how my daughter quotes it. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? Indeed, it is you, dude. That's how, she, that's how she quoted it when she was trying to get that verse. But is that not true? It's you, dude. It's my California influence. I can't help it. He's the only one. There is none other. He is singular. He is God. He commands worship because he deserves it. Because he's the only one there is to worship, truly. But you see, well, before I move on, Scripture makes it clear that there are only two systems of worship in the world. 1 Corinthians 10.20 says this, No, but I say, this is... Paul, speaking to the Corinthians about their worshiping in pagan temples, they say, hey, we're going there for a social time. We're going to hang out. We'll drink a little wine. We'll eat a little of the meat sacrificed to idols while the sacrifice is going on. Big difference than buying it in the market or eating it at someone's house. You're going to have to come on Wednesday night to get all that figured out. Really big difference. Worship service versus the thing that was sacrificed. Very different. He says, look, if you're at the worship service, here's what you're doing. 1 Corinthians 10.20, I say that the things with the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to become sharers in demons. He goes on to say, look, there's no other true gods. So either you're worshiping the true God or you are in demonic worship. That is worshiping the way that the enemy of your soul would desire. There's only two options, two religions in the world, the true one and the worship of Satan. That's it. 
Are you willing to recognize that? And so anything that isn't the worship of the true God, that is obedience to the truths of his word, comes underneath the worship of Satan. Just kind of, I think, helps reveal that for us a little bit more strongly so that you can just say, you know, when I chose to disobey my parents, I was worshiping Satan. When I chose to disobey my boss at work and grumble and complain, I chose to worship Satan. That's what you're doing. When I chose to be anxious and bitter and angry, I was worshiping Satan at that point. Again, for a believer, not a fundamental allegiance, but an acquiescence to who he is. But for, for unbelievers, a full-blown worship all of your life devoted to him. That's, that's the only other choice. Only two systems of worship. Turn to Joshua 24. I, I need you to see this. It's so important. And this verse is so misunderstood. Joshua 24, at the end of the conquering of the land, Joshua is challenging the people to serve God. In Joshua 24, verse 14, he says, Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your father served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. See, we, we kind of present these verses as Joshua's offering the people a choice. Well, you can serve God or serve others. We're, I'm going to serve the Lord. He's not offering them a choice. He's saying, look, serve God. There's only one person to serve him. By the way, he's saying, look, put away the gods you've been carrying around in your tents. I know they're there. All during the time, even of the conquering of the land, they've been dragging the gods of Egypt around in their tents and bowing down and worship to them. He says, put it away. It's time to be done. God just gave you the land. Notice what he says in verse 15. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord. Well, you've already decided you're not going to do it. And I'm not giving you that option. That's not what you're supposed to do. If it is, then choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Do you see it? He's not saying choose today God or false gods. You cannot choose false gods. You choose a real God. If you've already rejected the real God, now make your choice. Look what he says. If you choose not to serve God, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served will be on the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. What's he saying? There's only one true worship. If you reject that, pick any one of your gods. It doesn't matter. Drag it on out, worship it, get another one, go get the Amorites, go get the ones here. All those gods are the same. So choose, pick. The choice is yours. I'm going to serve the Lord, says Joshua, because all those other gods are false. They're fake. There's no real choice. The only choice comes if you reject God. So worship is commanded in Scripture. And by the way, notice it says worship Back in Matthew chapter 4, it says, worship your God and serve him only. Those two go together. Worship and service. Well, I'm worshiping him, but I don't, I don't do what he says. No, the indication of your worship is your service, your life given to him. What does Romans 12, 1 say? I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. My life is yours. So everything I have is yours. Everything I say, everything I do, everything I am. Worship and service go together. But Scripture does not simply command worship. Scripture commends worship. It's not pre- simply, the, the Bible does not simply present to you God, the holy, righteous, mighty, and awesome God. Says, you had better do this. It does say that. But it doesn't only do that. Scripture commends to you the worship of God, the one true deity in the universe, worthy of giving your full allegiance and service to, because he is the great 
holy, mighty, awesome God who loves his people and died for them, who provided for their salvation, who gave them everything necessary to come to him, to recover from sin, to be saved from eternal hell. Scripture commends your worship, not only commands it. And no one knew this better than Jesus. What does he say in John 17? What does Jesus say about his relationship with the Father? John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. Why is Jesus unassailable in this temptation? Why does he say, go, Satan, be done, that I would bow down to you is ridiculous? Because he knows the character of God the Father. Because he has spent all of eternity sharing in the love of the Father for the Son the Father and Son for the Spirit and all for one another, the one God in communion for all of eternity past. Jesus knows the character and nature of God, the love of God, the worthiness of God. And so he will not, does not, cannot bow to a created being who has none of those characteristics. Now I ask you, I ask you, do you understand God in that way? Is he only the great and mighty God who commands your worship or is he also the loving, gracious, saving Father who is worthy of every ounce of your devotion, of your entire life given to him. The great God who created the world would be enough to worship. But he has given you more. The loving, gracious Savior of your soul. How can you bow down? How could you remain in the condition, if you're an unbeliever this morning, of bowing down to worship the one who simply wants to destroy you? A created being who wants nothing more than to strike out at his creator in hatred and anger. Why would you bow down in any way? As a believer, in disobedience, in any form, as an unbeliever, your entire life devoted to the allegiance of the one who hates and seeks to destroy you because he hates the one who, do, who created the universe, this loving, great, mighty, and awesome God. When we learn to appreciate and believe the worthiness and love of God the way that Jesus did, then we will be able to resist temptation and worship God alone as Jesus did. And that's why he gave you the spirit, by the way. Because it's impossible for you to know the love of God until what? The spirit of God bursts into your heart, shedding abroad that love and crying out what? What does the spirit cry? Abba, Father, Daddy, I love you. Does your spirit cry that? When it does, you will resist the temptation. When it doesn't, you will fail. Unbelievers can never cry that and they always fail. Believers ever increasingly should, could, must understand the mighty, powerful, loving, gracious God. Well, just quickly now, the aftermath of the temptation, what happens? Of course, verse 11, the devil left him. By the way, Jesus used a final name for the devil in verse 10. He said, go Satan, kind of the final name we're given. Again, the enemy, leave enemy, enough, you're done. Then the devil does, in fact, leave him. Of course, he had to. By the way, he didn't leave him permanently. It says in Luke 4.13, when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. Now, um, it seems clear that he, there was temptations offered all throughout the time of Jesus' life, but it would appear that that opportune time was when? The cross. And this is where Satan again unleashes the full fury of his attempts to get Jesus to go off the cross. But that's for another time. That's coming. So he left for an opportune time. Satan never leaves permanently until he is placed into the lake of fire. Then he's done. Don't ever think that he's gone. He's left. He's finished. When you've resisted him once, you're going to have to resist him again 
and again. And then, now this is beautiful. Angels come and minister to him. Oh, this is no minor point. And behold, the angels came and began to minister to him. Temptation number two was what? Throw yourself off the temple so that the angels can minister to you. Force God's hand to receive the ministry that he would provide. Instead, Jesus does what? He obeys God, comes underneath him. And what does he receive? The exact thing promised in Psalm 91. Angels come and minister to him. God never fails at his word. It's always true. Just don't misinterpret it. Don't grab promises that aren't for certain times and try to bring them into situations that they don't apply. That's what Jesus didn't allow. On the other hand, it's written, don't test the Lord your God. Obey him and what happens? The angels come. It would seem that they brought him food. Seems our best understanding. They, they ministered to him physically and spiritually. The, the context there, the word that's used in the verb form seems to indicate a long period of time. It's not the aorist tense, which is kind of an immediate action. It's the imperfect tense, which it appears that there was a period of time in which they ministered to him, encouraging him and most likely bringing him food. We have many Old Testament examples of that. What a blessing. Jesus did what God required and what happens. God brings the blessing. Now, it's, it's not the, the fullness of the blessing, as it were. That's what we receive on this earth, not the fullness. But he receive, we receive the ministry of God to us to strengthen us and enable us to continue on accomplishing what the Lord would have. Never forget that. No, our final blessing is not here, but the blessing we receive is always what God promises as we obey him, we receive the ministry that he provides to continue to do what he's asked us to do. What's Hebrews 1.14 say? Angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? If they are to help us who will inherit salvation, how much more did they help the one who provided our salvation? God is, he does not fail in his promises. Obey him and see the greatness of what the Lord will provide. So I leave you with these thoughts. One, do you struggle with giving up your own power so that you might ultimately have the power of God? Because only in giving up your power do you receive his. Jesus understood this and passed the test. He didn't reach for the power of the nations or the kingdoms or his own. He gave his power to God so that God might exalt him at the proper time. Secondly, do you desire to avoid the pain, difficulties, and humility of taking up your cross? And instead, do you desire to have the crown of all the benefits that God would provide? Obedience is hard. You've already figured that out, haven't you? You go against your own desires. You go against the world. You go against your friends. You go against the culture. Obedience is hard. Take up your cross. Follow after Jesus, and you will find, of course, that that's where the true blessing comes. But do you want the crown without the cross? No one receives it that way. No one. And then lastly, do you continually cultivate an understanding of the worthiness of God and the love of God that you might have the strength and desire to worship him alone? You must cultivate your understanding of the worthiness of and the love of a holy God that you would have the desire to worship him and not the enemy of your soul. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for our time together this morning. I thank you for the joy of your triumph over temptation. And Lord, I pray that we would emulate you in the use of your word, in the love of the Father, in a passion to accomplish the work that was given to you, that we would desire the same, to thwart the enemy of our souls, and instead to worship you and serve you only. In your precious name, Lord Jesus, amen. 
Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that is gracemaryville.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace, but you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages not only presented by Pastor Chris, but also messages presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and college-aged ministries, as well as the SOLA and Essentials Conferences hosted at Grace. We invite you to visit us online, and we hope that you will join us again next time as Pastor Chris continues to exegetically work through the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the King, and the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.